Well, grab your Bibles. This morning we come to, once again, our series in the Psalms. And it's a series that has allowed us to travel down that long and winding road that fills us with emotion and logic and prayer and contemplation that comes so vividly to us from these songs in the Bible. And though we may not always think of the Psalms as songs, they most certainly are. In fact, a particular point in the Psalms is highlighted for us this evening in that we have the opportunity to hear Phil Webb in the evening time of worship in a time that he has titled A Symphony of the Psalms, where we're going to be singing and hearing portions of tremendous prose and poetry in Hebrew, now translated into English, and it will be a night of really encouragement and, and great, great expertise as you see choirs that have been brought together, not just the choir that we have here at Grace Church, but choirs, maybe even for some of you, that are going to be there tonight and singing the psalms. So the psalms are the songs of the Bible. Uh, Yes, there is the song of Moses in Deuteronomy. Yes, there is the song of Solomon, which is a book in and of itself. But the psalms are songs. And here in the book of Psalms, you have 150 songs, 150 songs of Scripture that were sung and used many times in the formal worship of liturgy in the people of Israel. So the Psalms come to us as a very, very special and unique portion of Scripture. They are songs, they are poems, they are musical expressions of worship, and because of that, as some people have noticed, Psalms is the only book of the Bible that isn't given formal chapters. I don't know if you've ever thought of that before, but as many of you know, most books in the Bible were divvied up by chapters around 1227 A.D. for our assistance by finding portions to memorize and reference with a little bit more ease. But the Psalms mostly are divided according to the original documents and how they were presented, as we shall see. As we have noted in our study before, most of the Psalms have titles, uh, superscriptions that designate their composers, and some even have a little bit of historical backdrop as we saw in Psalm 51 where it spoke of the circumstances related to the writing of the psalm. But for most part, the psalms come to us not as chapters to be read, but as songs or or poems to be sung. So since the psalms are divided as poem by poem, that's why you don't find Psalms chapter 23, for instance. You'll just find Psalm 23, or the 23rd Psalm. It's not given to us in plural, it's given to us individual. And by the way, don't let the psalm count fool you, even though there's 150 psalms. Psalms is not the longest book in the Bible. Actually, Jeremiah is, though you might not think it. But here's my favorite thing about the psalms. While most of the law and the prophets deal with God's messages to men... What you have here in the Psalms is how men can respond to God. Every other book in the Bible is written to people. The Psalms are directed toward the Creator. True, they are all still inspired by God, 2 Timothy 3.16, but they feel incredibly human to us in so many different ways because it is through the Psalms, as we have experienced even as a group, that you see how godly people speak to holy God how godly people in various different circumstances in their life speak to God Almighty. And so it's here in the Psalms that we see both praise and anguish. 
we see both the believer confronted with sin on the outside as well as sin confronting them on the inside. So it's here that the psalmist becomes for us our voice to heaven, our way of modeling how it is that we should speak to the Almighty, and also how we might be able to learn how to sojourn here on earth through the experiences that these dear inspired writers had for us. And I think that's very vital for our understanding of what we're going to dive in this morning. It brings us to our message that we have before us. It's a message that begins to look at, in my estimation at least, one of the most familiar and yet unfamiliar psalms in all of the canon. And please note, I say psalms, not psalm, because in this case, in my message this morning, it concerns psalms 42 and 43. Psalm 42 and 43, I heard the laugh. Why two psalms instead of just one? Because as theologians and historians will tell you, Psalm 42, you can turn to your Bibles there now, and Psalm 43 were originally one psalm, one psalm, one connected poem. I say that because the same circumstances appear to lie at the background of both of these psalms. Psalm 42 was the only one that has a superscription that describes something about the historical reasons behind the composition of it. Psalm 43 is lacking a superscription. Therefore, they are considered most likely meant to be connected together as one psalm. And as you're going to see, both psalms have the same tone. They have the same sense of language. They have the same sense of message. And most likely, the original song was probably divided into two at one time for devotional or liturgical purposes. In that, Psalm 42 kind of emphasizes the complaint of the writer, while Psalm 43 is the prayer that supplements the complaint. So this division is an ancient division, and it appears in all the ancient versions of the Old Testament and most Hebrew manuscripts. Also note, as we begin this, that when we started our psalm series, Psalms, Certain Truth for Uncertain Times, we began in Psalm 1, which is Book 1, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, bracketed together because they seemed also to be joined together. And I say that because here, as we begin in Psalm 42, it begins book two of the Psalms. And we also have two Psalms now at the beginning connected together. So as I begin our time this morning, I want to read for you both Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 as one Psalm. And then I'm going to introduce this song to you as we dive deeper into its riches. So Psalm 42 and 43, and I'm reading out of the Legacy Standard Bible. Psalm 42. For the choir director, a mascal of the sons of Korah. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember and pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God, with the sound of a shout of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Wait for God, 
For I shall still praise him for the salvation of his presence. Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of the Jordan, peaks of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. By day Yahweh will command his loving kindness, and by night his song will be with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go on mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries reproach me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Wait for God, for I shall still praise Him, the salvation of my presence and my God. Give justice to me, O God, and plead my case against an unholy nation. O protect me from the deceitful and unrighteous man, for you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy mountain and your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Wait for God, for I shall still praise him the salvation of my presence and my God. Indeed, as I said, this is both perhaps one of the most familiar and, as you shall see, unfamiliar psalms that we have in the Psalter. And I say that because what at first you might begin to sing underneath your breath this psalm, namely the familiar words in the first line, as the deer pants for the water, And then quickly comes a series of unfamiliar songs that desperately need context and filling out of circumstances to fully grasp what's happening in these words. But before we look at the superscription and the body of this psalm in detail, I'm sure you notice that the connecting verses that stand out as I read the psalm were the verses that seem to repeat the same idea three times throughout this. Verse 5 of Psalm 42, verse 11 of Psalm 42, and verse 5 of Psalm 43 all have the exact same idea, the exact same meditation, if you will, repeated over and over all throughout these verses, a statement that not only cements the idea that these two psalms are really, in essence, one psalm, but also a statement that constitutes what is the starting point for us this morning in what I have titled Part 1 of our study of these tremendous psalms. In fact, as we will note in detail next time, this intimate conversation that takes place in this psalm, this dueling dialogue, if you will, of the psalmist is having with himself, helps us to know how to divide up the psalm for our messages that are going to follow out of this message today. So if you're taking notes You have the first section from verses 1 through of Psalm 42 until verse 5, 
and then where that's where our spiritual soliloquy is first sung. And then section two is going to run from verse six through verse 11, where again, you see the psalmist repeating almost verbatim what he said in verse five, chapter one, verse five, until, excuse me, chapter 43, verse one, until verse five becomes the third section for our study, since once again, that dueling dialogue repeats itself for us to see. So again, just to repeat, you're going to see again this this ongoing kind of repetition of what it is that's in the heart of the psalmist, verse 5 of chapter 1, why are you in despair, O my soul? Again, chapter 42, verse 11, why are you in despair, O my soul? And Psalm 43, verse 5, why are you in despair, O my soul? So, We don't have an outline for you this morning. We don't have a structure, if you will. We just have this one reoccurring thought that I want to place before you for your consideration so you can just kind of break down some of the different words that we have here about this dueling dialogue. What we have here in verse 5 and verse 11 of Psalm 42 and again in verse 5 of Psalm 43 is one of the most interesting aspects that we have of these psalms that we might ever contemplate together And the key word of all of that, that sets all of this into motion, is the word why. Why? Why is one of the most important words you can ever know. Why is one of the words that can pry open a whole library of knowledge and insight because why is a vivid display of spiritual curiosity about why we do what we do. Why do you do what you do? Why are you the way that you are? And the second most gripping part of this repeating section, this dueling pronouns of you and I, are contrasted with pronouns of my and me. I'm sure you noticed that as I was reading through it. The psalmist, very important here, is speaking to his own soul as if he were outside of himself. He's speaking and reasoning with his own heart, as if he's the one that's speaking to someone else that lives inside of him. He is saying, why are you in despair, O my soul? The psalmist is speaking to his own soul. He is outside of himself. He is reasoning with his own heart as if he is the one speaking to someone else. You, my soul, need to wait for God. And you, my soul, when you do that, I shall praise him still. So if you're kind of catching up with what I'm talking about here, we got the key word of why coupled with key pronouns of you and my We welcome something here that's very, very instructive to us, very, very important. That's why I just want to spend the opening time that we have in these two psalms, really one psalm, with this consideration. And this is really to help those who are in despair, those who are contemplating this life in such a way where it leads you to contemplating despair. Namely, I want to present to you the practice of talking to ourselves, talking to ourselves. You know, many of you remember in this room, not all of you, but uh, the introduction of cell phones, especially when they came with earbuds, it became increasingly common for people to be talking to themselves, or so it seemed. And what was once maybe just heard on Venice Boardwalk uh, with people walking back and forth, kind of mumbling to themselves, is now heard on every single corner that you're at with people with their phones, and we're in a constant conversation 
out loud with no one there. In other words, it seems as if the idea of talking to oneself is literally exploded. But the truth is, it's not shocking. In Scientific America, we are told psychologists use the term inner speech for this phenomenon in which people talk to themselves silently in their head. It has a cousin, private speech, which people talk to themselves audibly. If you say words to yourself such as, remember to get some coffee or stick to the plan without making a sound, then you're using inner speech. If you say something similar to yourself out loud, it is private speech. For some reason, I have private speech all the time. I constantly have the phrase that goes through my mind, and I say it out loud, not meaning to. I always say, it is what it is. That's my constant mantra throughout my day. It is what it is. In other words, I have no control. God is in complete control. But it is normal to speak to yourself, just to relieve any kind of guilt that you might have at this point. It is a part of God has wired us as individuals. It's just part of how we were created. But here in the Word of God, something very special is being shown through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We see something more fascinating is going on here than just talking to yourself as if you had a monologue or some kind of soliloquy in a play. We see dialogue between two parts of the one speaking. There is a part of the psalmist that knows better There's a part of the psalmist that has read the end of the book, who knows how the story ends. We have the one who has landed on what is important, has resolved himself to live that way. And then you have on the other part of the psalmist that doubts, that questions his life in such a way that it seems as if he has thrown everything he's ever learned or everything he's ever been taught out the window. It's like a child to a parent. The child is the one who is fretful and despairing, while the one speaking is the parent who knows better and is ready to counsel the frightened child into right thinking. The psalmist, the one who is speaking, is speaking to his own soul. He is speaking to his own soul. He is questioning his own soul. There is therefore a part of himself that is the counselor and the other part of him that is the counselee. And everyone who has gone through the Master's University with Dr. Street knows that you become a counselor first to yourself so that you can counsel others. In the Amplified Bible, we read, Why are you cast down, O my inner self? And why should you moan over me and be disquieted within me, hope in God and wait expectantly for Him? For I shall yet praise Him, my help and my God. So three times in this one psalm, the psalmist, who we will speak of more next time in detail, he repeats over and over again this phrase to his own heart, a phrase that expresses his inner battle with fighting the sin in his mind. Over and over again, just to make this pretty clear, or hopefully perfectly clear, the Bible is showing us that the believer must wage war with himself First and foremost, in a battle for our thoughts. Our thoughts. Charles Spurgeon says, Every man who is, excuse me, Charles Spurgeon says, Every man is two men. 
We are duplicates, if not triplicates, and it is well sometimes to hold a dialogue with one's own self. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? I always notice that as long as I can argue with myself about my depressions, I can get out of them. But when both the men within me go down at once, it is a downfall indeed. When there is one foot on the solid rock, the other comes up to it pretty soon, end quote. So there's a purpose for this. Old Testament commentator Derek Kidner in his commentary on Psalm 42 says that there's an important dialogue between two aspects of the believer who is at once a man of convictions and a creature of change. A man of convictions versus a creature of change. He's called to live, he says, in eternity. His mind stayed on God, but also in time where mind and body are under pressures that cannot and should not leave him impassive, end quote. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the doctor, as most of us know him, was possibly the greatest preacher and teacher of the 20th century, a medical doctor by training. He was also a pastor and teacher by calling, and he had a very distinctly important impact on the Christian world of his day. And one of the reasons why he was so impactful occurred in 1954 when Dr. Lloyd-Jones preached on a subject that few other preachers cover, namely sermons on depression. Depression. It was then in 1954 that the doctor veered away from what was customary in his practice of preaching through books in the Bible verse by verse by verse in order to preach a sermon series dedicated to the topic of spiritual depression. And the origin of this series is referenced by Ian Murray in the second volume of his authorized biography of Dr. Lloyd-Jones called The Fight of Faith. It's a volume that took me two years to get through. Uh, I put it by my bedside. That's, if you don't want to read a book, put it by your bedside because it's every night you keep falling asleep. But anyway, he says the following. I got up one morning, washed, and was still half-dressed when quite suddenly that verse came to me. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted in me? Hope thou in God. There and then, some seven or eight skeletons of sermons came to my mind on the subject of spiritual depression. I rushed down to my study to put them on paper, and so powerful was the impression that I knew I had to do this series before Ephesians. I am not surprised it was so used. It was a pure gift, In quote. So what ended up happening, if you're unfamiliar with this entire incident, is that Lloyd-Jones preached essentially a collection of 24 sermons on depression, a series that he delivered in a post-war world of unrest and grief that eventually became the foundation for the book, Spiritual Depression, which you can find in our bookstore, which has been a goldmine to me and to countless others as well. And it's there in this book that Dr. Lloyd-Jones makes this famous observation. I want to read it to you in its entirety because it's so apropos for what it is that we are studying this morning. It's a little long, but bear with me. He says, notice the psalmist addresses himself. He talks to himself And herein he discovers the cure. The main problem in the whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this. We allow ourself to talk to us instead of talking to ourself. 
He's going to expand this. Most unhappiness in life is due to the fact that we listen to ourselves instead of talking to ourselves. David, in effect, he's ascribing to this uh, Psalm 42 and 43, the authorship of David. We'll talk about that next week. David, in effect, says, self, listen for a moment to what I have to say. Why are you so downcast? The main art in the matter for spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself, question yourself, and preach to yourself. You must remind yourself who God is and what God has done and what God has promised to do. This is the essence of the treatment in a nutshell. We must understand that this self of ours, this other man within us, has got to be handled. Do not listen to him. Turn on him. Speak to him. Remind him of what you know. So rather than listening to him and allowing him to drag you down and depress you, you must take control, end quote. Great, great premise. Uh, life-changing premise for so many. In essence, the premise for his book and a very premise for us in our introduction of Psalm 42 and 43 is just exactly that. So in the context of Psalm 42, 5, the implication is that sometimes you and I will preach a sermon of hope in God to ourselves, to our own souls, and we have to be patient and wait for the Spirit to take this truth and renew our mind and uplift our souls. So while this verse is, believe me, not a magic cure or anything like that, it's not going to zap you out of being downcast in a moment. It's a supernatural source of God's wisdom on how to conduct yourself when we find ourselves, as Bunyan would say, in the slaw of despond. The psalmist is in despair. You heard me say that over and over again as I read. His soul has literally been brought low, figuratively humbled. To have one arrogance brought down is to be put in despair. When it says that he is in despair, as I said, going back, I look at it, verse, uh, verse 6, verse 5. He continues on about the despair of his heart. He, he speaks of this because... It is a sense of him having to bow down. In some translations, it actually says curtsy, to give deference to, to, to bow in a sense of to walk in a stooped posture, for example, describing one who's been dejected in a period of mourning, to, to physically bring down yourself. That is how the psalmist feels. He is in despair. The burden of his back is breaking him. And then he adds this, this probing of his soul, why are you disturbed, my soul? Not only am I despairing, but I am disturbing at the same time. By the way, I, I thought I'd just mention this as a side point. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about the difference between the soul and the spirit. And so what's the deal here? You might be thinking of that. Who's talking to who? I mean, am I schizophrenic? What's going on here? And the Bible, in the Bible, the soul and the spirit in my studies, are used interchangeably over and over again. So sometimes a man's spirit is doing it. Sometimes a man's soul is doing it. I don't think you have the spirit of the psalmist speaking to the soul of the psalmist, even though I think some folks might think that. It's not like the spirit of man is the noble part and the soul of the man is the earthly part or, or anything like that. So just don't go there in your mind. But saying that, part of me, my soul, there is a part of me, this part of me that is deep within me, 
is not only despairing, but it's disturbed. I am disturbed. Hama conveys the root meaning of to cry out, to make a loud noise. I am turbulent in my heart. We're going to study the reasons why this is happening to the psalmist next time. But this is a very strong word in the Hebrew emphasizing uh, commotion, strong feeling, unrest, to, to murmur, to growl, uh, literally to growl like a bear. That's what's going on with this psalmist, to sound like some say in Psalm 46.3 or Jeremiah 5, like the waves roar, like the nations roar. The Septuagint that translates this same word into the Greek comes with a word that means literally to shake or to agitate like a water glass sharply jarred. It, again, has this idea of complete confusion. So whatever the circumstances are, and again, I want to go into that more in more depth next time. Whatever the situation is, this is the quagmire that the psalmist finds himself in. This is the quandary, the dilemma that he has with himself. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Verse 3 tells us that my eyes are swollen with tears. Verse 9 tells us that he's in mourning. Verse 2 of Psalm 43 tells us again he is in mourning. His emotions are getting the best of him. He has been so engulfed in emotionality of his trial that it's as if the more faithful side of him is speaking to the emotional side of him. The more grounded part of him has to shake the less grounded, irrational part of him and say, remember what you know. One time years ago, I remember Pastor John's wife, Patricia, many of you know this, was in a horrible car accident. Very difficult time. She broke her neck. Uh, and it was hard for the family, hard for all of us in the church, too. And one of Pastor John's daughters told me, and John has said this from the pulpit as well, that at the time, she was walking back and forth at home. She was very upset. She was crying and panicking, in a sense, completely distraught. And Pastor John just held out his arms and, and held her and said, Sweetheart, you either believe in God's sovereignty or you don't. So believe. And so sometimes we need the psalmist, the Spirit of God, that part of us who, where Christ lives in us to grab us by the bootstraps, to hold our shoulders in love, and to sit there and say, you either believe or you don't, so start acting like you believe. Understand the truth. But the way he said is it, is it like this. He goes, wait for God, for I shall still praise him. Wait for God. This is my counsel. Soul, that part of me that is in despair, listen to me. You need to wait for God. Because this more trusting part of us has already decided that regardless of what is going on, I shall still praise him. I don't know what the circumstances are. They are dreadful. We'll see next time that the, the torrents have completely engulfed him. He longs for that which he does not have. And yet he says again, over and over again, three times in this one psalm composed of two, wait for God, I shall still praise him, the salvation, my God. 
This is what Lloyd-Jones was stressing, and I hope you're making the connection as we go through this together. Talking to ourselves rather than allowing ourselves to, to listen to ourselves is very, very important. You get that distinction? We are not to listen to ourselves in the cacophony of craziness that comes out of our heads. We are to speak to ourselves. It is the case of the mind speaking to the emotions rather than the emotions directing the mind. You get that distinction? So you don't have to take yourself in hand. You, you have to address yourself. You have to instead preach to yourself. You have to question yourself. You have to sit there and ask your soul, why are you so downcast? What is wrong? What business Do you have to be so distressed? You must turn on yourself. You must abrade yourself and exhort yourself and say to yourself, hope in God, Patton. Hope in God, fill in your name. Hope in God instead of muttering in a depressed, unhappy way what you have been saying to yourself. Don't listen. It's almost as if in this kind of analogy that we get from the psalmist, this this gift that we get of the three repetitions of this ongoing phrase, it's almost as if you have to see life from both sides all the time. You have to be willing, listen, to straighten yourself out. You have to be willing to get tough with yourself. You can't be all, oh, I don't know, things just don't seem to work out for me. It's been that way for, oh, one, two, three, really my whole life. (laughs) Things just haven't gone well. Just even by the way I sound, don't you want to shake me? And sit there and say, what's wrong with you, man? I read once about a South American fish called Four Eyes that knows how to make the best of two worlds. Let me explain. His secret is his large, bulging eyes. The Lord designed this fish so that they can be seen, they can see above water and below water at the same time. The Lord did this. I, I didn't do it. The fish, the, the fish does this by cruising along through the water with the upper half of the eyes above the surface, and the top half has an air lens, and the bottom half has a water lens. That's where we got contacts from. I mean, I think. And so the two lenses outfit four eyes, one, two, three, four, with a set of natural bifocals allowing him to see both the upper world and the underworld, if you see where I'm going. I think the lesson is clear. In a sense, Christians must be like this little tropical fish. We should look up longing to the idealism of heaven while looking down lovingly into the realism of earth. And the heavenward look is to reflect the hunger and thirst for righteousness as our Lord instructs us to have, while the earthly shows our compassion and love to the lost of suffering. And when we find ourselves focused too long on the world below, we remind ourselves, we preach to ourselves, we speak to ourselves about the voice, not that's coming from within, but the voice from heaven that tells us to regain our composure, to wait on the Lord and to act in accordance with all that we understand. So for the next time we're going to be in Psalm 42 and 43, I want to look a little deeper into what the Holy Spirit has for us here in these two psalms as they are seen together as one. And here's the point of all that I want to focus on for our thoughts. 
something that applies, I think, to each and every one of us in the room. I want to focus on not treating our emotions as truth, okay? I want you to not treat your emotions as truth. I want you to examine how, to, how prone we are to believe that our feelings trump our theology, how often you live, as they say sometimes, as a practical atheist because you let your feelings trump your theology. I want to focus on not allowing that to happen because we know that our despair is true because you really do feel the things that you really do feel because we know that our, our sorrow and our tears, we sense them, they roll down our eyes. Our pain is real. There is no confronting of that. We can't fake it. We're not faking it. We then falsely conclude, because the feelings are real, that our feelings are truth. Because we have true feelings, our feelings must be true. And so we listen to our feelings. We listen to them. We, we listen to our pain. We listen to those voices that agree to those vices in our life that we so easily gravitate towards. And we listen to our lust and our longings and our affections over and above our doctrine. We listen to ourselves instead of preaching to ourselves. So please notice, even if we begin to stop listening to ourselves, let's say you, you get that first part of the equation as we've been going through it this morning, even if you stop listening to yourself, but you don't have a biblical theology, get this, you don't have a biblical theology to preach to yourself, then not only are we listening to the wrong voice, but we're preaching the wrong message to us when we do preach. This is how vital it is, listen, to know your Bible. Know your Bible. It's, it's so important that you understand your Bible. It's an understand that you understand the, the Bible more than the babble. You want to understand the Bible more than the psychological babble that comes out of most of us. I, I, I can't give you enough illustrations, just common day, almost every day, where someone will say to me something, and I correct it, hopefully lovingly, trying to say, well, this is what the Bible says, and then the response to me will be, well... That's because you're a scholar. That's because you're a pastor. You know, you're so deep. And it's not true at all. In fact, I think I'm making a pretty obvious point. But people take away the sting of the truth by saying, oh, that's only for those who went to seminary. Or, oh, you go to John MacArthur's church, and that's the only reason you talk that way. As opposed to the fact that no... You don't know your Bible. Jesus said to the Pharisees, have you not read? Have you not read? Do you not know the Bible? Do you only stick to your traditions, what you've made up more than what I have laid down? So if you want to figure yourself out, people go, I just got to figure myself out. I just want to know. I want to know about myself. Okay, I got a suggestion for you. Uh, go to John Street's series on Ecclesiastes. John did a series on Ecclesiastes a few years ago and see the conclusion that Solomon came with and his message is, you can't figure yourself out. What are you doing? The wisest man who ever lived, except for Jesus Christ, 
Even he couldn't figure out himself or his life. His conclusion was, stop fearing the fact that you can't figure yourself out and start fearing God with whatever time you have left. That's not to say that your feelings are meaningless, by the way. And let me end with this. It's not to say that you shouldn't work towards understanding why you are the way you are. Again, examining yourself before God, as we shall see next time, is good, very good. Mourning is good. That's what Jesus said. As long as you're mourning over the right thing, as long as your emotions are informed by Scripture and not by self. And what we're going to see next time are so very helpful truths that I think are going to encourage you as you preach the truth to yourself. And I'm going to have Jeff learn a special song for us, a song I'm going to say right now. So next time we'll sing it together. You know the song. It says, Be still, my soul. The Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God in order and provide. In every change, he faithfully will remain. Be still, my soul, thy best, thy heavenly friend, through thorny ways leads to a joyful end. If we could speak to ourselves as the hymnist, as the psalmist speaks to themselves, then this study in Psalm 42 and 43 will be greatly profitable for all of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we've had this morning. Father, I know that every time your word is open, there is so much more that could be said, so much more that should be said. But Father, thank you for the time that we have had and help us to contemplate how it is that we speak to our own hearts and that we do speak biblically, that we take away the thoughts that so often plague us that have nothing to do with your truth and instead engulf ourselves in just such thinking that rots away our trust and our confidence and our ability to wait. Keep us close to your side. Help these psalms to encourage us and bless us, Lord, not because, again, of who we are, but because of who you are. Thank you for your word. In Christ's name, amen.